From the banks of the Colorado River in Lake Mead to the homes and businesses in Southern Nevada, welcome to Water Smarts, the podcast pumping from the heart of Las Vegas, where we engage with the experts who keep the water flowing throughout Southern Nevada. I'm Bronson Mack. And I'm Crystal Zelke. From how we treat it, deliver it, use it, protect it, and conserve it, the Water Smarts podcast is all about water in Southern Nevada. We hope to make you a little smarter about the one thing that keeps us all connected, water. Hey, Water Smarts podcast listeners. We have a special episode for you today. We recently sat down with the executive team of the Southern Nevada Water Authority to discuss what's happening on the Colorado River. What's happening at Lake Mead? You've all seen the water levels declining, and we wanted to give you a state of the water, if you will. Yeah, Crystal, this is a really good overview. What you are going to hear is you are going to hear the general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, John Ensminger, the deputy general manager of resources, Colby Pellegrino, our deputy general manager of operations, Dave Johnson, and then our general counsel, Greg Walsh. These four individuals are deeply involved in negotiations on the Colorado River, managing all of aspects of our local water supply. And so as they go through and have this conversation, first of all, it's going to be very informative and very educational. But, you know, they do use some terminology that you may not necessarily be familiar with that kind of could be considered water jargon. So I just want to make sure that all of our listeners, before we start this, just have an opportunity to understand what some of these terms are. You're going to hear reference to the word ERPAC. And ERPAC was simply a citizens advisory committee that we had convened. ERPAC is just the acronym for Integrated Resource Planning Advisory Committee. I know it's a mouthful. That's why we called it the ERPAC. On top of that, you're going to hear something about the Mexico Minutes or uh, minutes to the Mexico Treaty. These are agreements that are between the United States and the country of Mexico with regards to Colorado River water. And Greg Walsh has been uh, very intimately involved in those. So he'll be talking a little bit about that. You're also going to hear a little bit about releases from Lake Powell to Lake Mead. Remember, Lake Powell is upstream of Lake Mead and releases water every year down to us here at Lake Mead. That said, the Bureau of Reclamation held back some water in Lake Powell this year to help protect power production at Lake Powell because water levels at that reservoir have also been critically low. Last two things you're likely to hear about are the 07 guidelines and the drought contingency plan, commonly called the DCP. So if you hear reference to the 07 guidelines and the DCP, just know that ultimately those are agreements amongst the seven states that determine what the shortage volumes are, how much water Arizona and Nevada have to forfeit each year as a result of declining lake levels. We are in that first level of shortage this year. We will move to that next level of shortage next year. You're going to hear a little bit about that with our roundtable discussion. And I guess the last thing you're going to hear about is the Central Arizona Project. And just so you know, that's the system that brings Colorado River water into Arizona, Phoenix, and Tucson in order to meet water demands in that desert environment. Anything else to add there, Crystal, before we get started on this roundtable? No, I was just going to say it's great listening. It's timely. And I guarantee you will learn something by listening to this. Absolutely. Listening to the experts coming at you right here. Without further ado, here is the roundtable with Southern Nevada Water Authority's executive management team. John, at this very moment, what's the big picture on Colorado River and Lake Mead? 
Well, unfortunately, it's pretty bad. You know, we had the first ever federally declared shortage uh, in August. Uh, conditions have continued to decline uh, since then. I, in March, I told a water conference up in Salt Lake City that the future of the Colorado River is pain, and anyone who tells you differently is selling something. So Colby can give you some of the numbers, uh, but the, the circumstances are pretty dire right now. We're almost certainly going to be in a tier two shortage next year, resulting in additional water supply reductions to the community. Depending upon what this summer and this summer's water demand shape up like, uh, we could be seeing a tier three shortage as early as 2024 and elevations in Lake Mead nearing 1,000 feet. Based upon the modeling that we've done and the look that we've taken at how we protect Lake Mead levels from continuing to decline, we estimate that we're going to need as a Colorado River Basin community to conserve between two and four and a half million acre feet additional on top of the reductions we've already agreed to every single year in order to get through to renegotiating the guidelines in 2026. So you touched on where we were going with the next question, which is the next thing is an expected tier two shortage. So just a little bit more about what that really means for Southern Nevada, and then what does it also mean for Arizona and California? So at a tier one shortage, our legal allocation is reduced by 21,000 acre feet. So instead of 300,000 acre feet available to us this year, we have 279,000 acre feet available to us. At a tier two, that cut goes from 21 to 25. So our legal entitlement would be reduced to 275,000 acre feet. Uh, But to put that in context, last year we used 242,000 acre feet. So even at a tier two shortage, uh, we're still in pretty good shape from a water resource perspective. But the more concerning thing is the rapid rate of the decline of, of Lake Mead. So under a tier two shortage, it gets a little bit more complicated because as we get deeper into shortage, our reductions increase as do Arizona's. So at the beginning of a tier two shortage, Arizona would go from taking a reduction of 512,000 acre feet that they took this year, 2022, up to 592 to 640,000 acre feet of shortage, depending upon how low Lake Mead's elevation falls. If Lake Mead does fall below 1045 to begin the year, then California will begin participating in shortages. Their contribution starts at 200,000 acre feet, and for every five feet that Lake Mead drops, their uh, response has to increase by 50,000 acre feet per year. So. Why does California not take cuts any sooner? Well, uh, Colby mentioned that California doesn't take cuts above 1045, and the reason for that is after having lost the uh, Arizona versus California decision at the Supreme Court, uh, California knew that Arizona could be leveraged for the construction of the Central Arizona project. So they, they leveraged them by saying, look, we will have Congress fund the construction of that project provided that you take a junior position to all of the present perfected rights uh, in California. So the CAP allocation goes to zero legally before California takes any kind of cut. So to get California to actually contribute something to the DCP was quite a, a challenge. It was a big step for the basin states and a lower basin to make happen. So Dave, do we expect Lake Mead's water level to hit an elevation of 895 feet or what we call dead pool and if so what does that mean for the Colorado River compact 
and Southern Nevada, as well as Arizona and California. There are very plausible scenarios where Lake Mead's elevation could go all the way down to Deadpool, to 895, as you mentioned. And what that basically means is that is the point at which the lake level is would no longer allow uh, water to be able to flow through Hoover Dam and down to Arizona, California, and our obligations for the country of Mexico. And so we have spent quite a bit of time and energy as an organization over the last decade plus in preparing for that with infrastructure. So we are in by far and away the best shape on the whole Colorado River associated with access to our resource and uh, um, candidly puts us in a, in a much better position than the other lower basin states. I'm really not even sure what to say from a legal perspective. <laughs> Once we get to the point of Deadpool, right, where water can't go through the dam, uh, we've got 96.4% of the of the allocation of the lower basin not getting to where it needs to go. So the uh, notion that uh, we'll end up at Deadpool is hard to imagine. Fortunately, these folks did imagine it um, 15 years ago. As we approach those kinds of levels, we would fully expect the Secretary of the Interior, maybe even the Secretary of State under the treaty, to uh, take actions uh, unilaterally with respect to those types of levels that would cause at least some amount of water to get through. So those are scenarios that are frankly difficult from a legal perspective to imagine because of everybody everybody on the river has their their special law, right? This this is my particular piece of the law of the river and I think that's the most important piece. It generally goes down a priority system where you know it's treaty, it's compact, it's statute. And everybody's got their their reason that they should be getting a piece of that water coming through the dam. It's gonna be very difficult. Uh, to manage the system if we get to that kind of level, but it'll have to be done. And as Greg describes, I mean, the way the the law of the river evolved over time, because most people point back to the 22 compact and, and say that's the law of the river, but just about every decade, you know, a, a new treaty, a new statute, uh, you know, has been added to it, a new set of agreements. And Greg also alluded to the fact that California, at least vis-a-vis California and Arizona, has a senior priority. But at some point, uh, the law of nature trumps the law of man. You know, so I think that's what you know our, our legal counselors have struggled a little bit to even describe, because the nature of this would be so unprecedented as to you know what steps the federal government may be required to unilaterally take. Nobody knows exactly how those legalities are, are going to sort out. But what's important for our community to always focus on is, as Dave discussed, we have far and away the most secure means of delivery of this precious resource of anybody on the river. Uh, and as long as we continue to take care of our demand management, which I know we'll talk about here in a little bit, our community uh, is still safe, we're secure, uh, we control our own destiny. Dave, how has the construction of our third intake and low lake level pumping station changed our outlook for us locally? Well, first of all, I'd say that the project was very, very innovative in its thought, in its design, and certainly in its construction. Think about going down uh, 600 feet and then three miles underneath Lake Mead out to a submerged intake structure was really an engineering feat and the people who uh, were involved in that project should and are quite proud of uh, being able to deliver that along with the low lake level pumping station which again had its own 
level of innovative approach and uh, even the equipment itself uh, had never been utilized in this fashion for this kind of volume and delivery. And, you know, as John mentioned, really what it does for us is it gives us a very, very reliable ability to be able to pump water from Lake Mead to our ratepayers. And uh, um, I really can't you know, emphasize enough just how valuable that that forward thinking and that investment was to be able to shore up our access to the resource that we have. And just a, a little backstory on that because we're, we're merging this infrastructure story with the negotiations on the river, right? So when I became general manager in February of 2014, at that point, we were negotiating uh, with Arizona and California about what we called uh, absolute protect a thousand, right? To set up the rules of the roads so that we would operate the, the river system in a way that there was no chance of Mead ever going below a thousand. And that would have protected uh, our, our two upper intakes, right? And kept the two pumping stations functioning. It became very clear in those negotiations that we were not going to get that kind of security at the negotiating table. So uh, we happened to have an IRPAC committee meeting at that time. So we went to them and said, look, it'll probably cost us $650 million to build the low lake level pumping station. But if we do that, we're going to be secure, even in a situation, you know, like Greg painted, of not being able to release water downstream to Arizona, California, and, and Mexico. That Citizens Committee unanimously endorsed that. Uh, our board of directors unanimously endorsed that. They changed our rates so that we would be able to, to pay for it. So, you know, this is you know, eight years ago now that, you know, it wasn't just the staff here at the authority. It was our entire community assessing the risk and saying that's not a risk profile that we're going to accept. So we move forward to, again, secure uh, our community and make sure we can take care of ourselves. And that low lake level pumping station was just completed in 2020, right? And this was the first time we had to flip the switch and activate it. Yeah, the, the elevation in Lake Mead got down to the point where we were able actually to operate it really for the first time without the, uh, the flow dissipators and prove out that the pumps are meeting their design criteria. So yeah, it's in, it's in operation right now and no time too soon. And, and we actually told ourselves at the time, right? We're going to build $650 million in infrastructure that we hope we never turn on. And then we, we complete it, and two years later, we, we, we have to turn it on. So one of the benefits of the third intake project also is drawing water from that low in Lake Mead actually has some pretty significant uh, beneficial impacts to water quality. And the first is temperature. The temperature impact allowing us to be able to supply water that has lower uh, disinfection byproduct values. And so that's, uh, that's a really a fantastic benefit for us. And also what it does is it allows for us to be able to potentially use that water, that thermal ability to be able to minimize some of the, the cooling load in the valley that we're working on right now potentially benefiting some conservation measures. So there's all kinds of different benefits as a result of, of the project and we're experiencing some of them and we're actually looking toward the future to benefit from even more of that. John or Colby, how does the very visible increase in home construction here in the Valley affect our future water supply? I would say this is one of the most common questions we get asked, Crystal. How can we continue to grow in this valley? I see the new homes going in. How are you making my water supply safe? And why can we continue? 
continue to do this despite everything we're hearing about Lake Mead? I think the answer is that our conservation code continually evolves to address new development. Starting in 2004, we restricted turf in front and backyards, and our board just recently passed a resolution to not allow any turf in homes. It will only be allowed in schools, parks, and cemeteries going forward. These are the kind of steps that we sort of have to continue to apply to new development and minimize their water footprint up front. The single-family homes going in today use very, very little water and make up a huge part of our economy. The same is true for our businesses as we tackle evaporative cooling and we have not allowed turf in landscapes for businesses for a very long time. And AB 356 is going to get rid of all the turf that shouldn't be in businesses to begin with. These types of conservation efforts are what allow us to continue to grow. And we've been successful at showing that we can grow while using less water. As we sit here today, if we look back to 2002, we've added over 750,000 people, and we're using 26% less water. And per capita, we're using about half as what we used then. So uh, as long as we continue to make sure that the next generation of development has the smallest water footprint possible, we use you know, rigorous planning in our conservation projections, how much these changes can bring in so that we can ensure that we can meet the needs of everyone in this valley and continue growth. And it is obviously a a challenge, just optically, you know, it's counterintuitive uh, with the levels of the lake going down and then all the new construction we're seeing. You know, as Colby said, that really is the most common question we get of how can we continue to do this? But, But there's a couple of big drivers, right? Anybody you know, who lived in Las Vegas through uh, the recession remembers the devastating economic impact uh, zero growth had on our community. About 30% of our economy is construction. So to go from zero tomorrow would would really have a devastating impact on on our economy. And it really is about how we grow, not, not whether we grow. With the now prohibition on turf in new single family construction, you know, the only way they're going to consume water is through desert-friendly landscaping in their yards uh, and the possibility of a pool in the backyard, which will have a very, very small water footprint. But I think it's important for everybody to remember, you know, if, if you moved here since 2002, you did that because someone else conserved. We've been growing on conservation for the last 20 years, and the only way we're going to continue to be able to keep growing is by even more aggressive uh, conservation measures. What are the current negotiations on the river to help keep Lake Mead's water level from further decline? We, we actually spent most of the spring this year negotiating for how to protect Lake Powell because for the first time we were seeing a, a significant probability that Lake Powell could go below minimum power pool, which means Glen Canyon Dam would stop generating hydroelectric power, the city of Page would lose access to, to their water supply. Portions of the Navajo Nation would lose access to their water supply. So the seven states and the federal government came together over a pretty condensed, about a six-week period, and negotiated for how to first move water from upstream to downstream to help protect those levels, and then also to leave more water in Powell than was scheduled to be delivered to, to Lake Mead, which unfortunately for the lower basin, 
you know, exacerbated the issues in Lake Mead and drove the elevations down probably about another seven feet or so. So now, just recently, the Bureau of Reclamation has come out and said, in order to protect our pool up in Powell and elevation 1,000 in Mead, the, the river community is facing between 2 million and 4.5 million acre feet in additional cuts. So that's an enormous amount of water. I mean, current usages on the Colorado River are somewhere around 15 million acre feet for seven states and two countries. So at that higher end, you're talking about almost a third of current uses on the river needing to be cut and, and probably permanently cut uh, unless the hydrology you know, really takes a turn for the better. Greg, the country of Mexico has a significant allocation on the river and have in recent years banked water to help support Lake Mead's elevation. What role does the country play in these negotiations? Mexico plays a very uh, large and important role, starting with the kind of hierarchical law of the river. Mexico has a treaty right, so it's a right between the Republic of Mexico and the United States, whereby the United States guaranteed Mexico 1.5 million acre feet per year, subject to emergency declarations of sorts. So that's roughly 10% of what John just talked about in terms of river usage overall. The thing with uh, Mexico is that while it has the best priority on the river, that's the highest priority you can get, even more than California, you might not agree with that, but even more than California, it has come to the table as a, as a full partner in, in many ways. So, st so starting in 2010, uh, in minute 318, Mexico had some earthquakes that affected some deliveries in uh, agricultural districts. And they started storing water in, in Lake Mead under, under that minute, which is a, essentially an interpretive document of the treaty that I talked about. But beyond that, in minute 319, which was agreed to in 2012, Mexico agreed to take cuts uh, as the river declined and Lake Mead's elevation declined. It didn't have to do that. Right? Mexico had the, the best priority on the river and it could have sat back and said we're not going to participate. But recognizing the difficulties that the system faced, as early as 2012, it, it essentially became a full partner in sharing the pain that John talked about. In 2017, we executed Minute 323, which is another interpretive document, continued the shortage provisions of Mexico's allocation. But more important than that, it, Mexico agreed ahead of time that to the extent the United States enters into a drought contingency plan, or the lower basin does, uh, whereby the lower basin takes further cuts or is required to add water to the lake, Mexico would do so too. So it took the first step, even though it was really only required to take the last. So they, they've been a full partner that way. There's a lot of work to be done in Mexico relative to the politics. It's uh, complicated politically. The rights that Mexico has to water in the Colorado River are federal rights. It needs to get down to the irrigation districts to conserve. So we got to go through a couple different pieces of the federal government in Mexico to make that happen. We're, we're doing that constantly. We're trying to do projects in Mexico that conserve water, that keeps water in Mead. We're part of that. We have partners in the lower basin that are part of that, and the federal government is part of that as well. But that dialogue continues along with the dialogue that John and Colby referred to with the states, because Mexico is going to need to play a, a major role in coming to terms with the pain that needs to be shared. And the only thing I would add about in terms of our relationship uh, with, with Mexico is they, they really have been a tremendous partner. 
they've been more forward-looking uh, and frankly more aggressive in advocating for steps that need to be taken uh, for a sustainable river for, for everybody than many of the water users uh, within the United States. And a lot of the agreements that Greg talked about, and he and I were both involved in negotiating a lot of those, they're, they're some of the best new uh, steps to protect this river that we've taken uh, over the last couple of decades. You know, I have a copy of Minute 319 in my office that's been translated into Russian because these transboundary negotiations and mutual protections for, for two countries are being used as models in other parts of the world for how transboundary water issues can be resolved. Agriculture uses the lion's share of the Colorado River, upwards of 70% of the water used. How can the agricultural sector help in the situation we're now facing on the river? So in any given year, agriculture uses between 70 and 80% of the river's water. When we look at the math for the quantities of water that need to be saved, this 2 million to 4.5 million acre feet, there's not 2 million acre feet of municipal use within the lower basin. And probably just above that if you look basin-wide. So to think that the solution can just be solved by cities is wrong. We just don't have enough water within the cities in order to do it. So agriculture has to step up to the table. There's obviously different ways that are palatable in different communities. Uh, the most common approach is following, and we saw a lot of that when we tested the system conservation pilot program. People just said, pay me not to farm. As we get into higher value crops and things that uh, don't get tilled over every single year, like citrus trees, those aren't options. And what we really have to look on for those areas is on-farm efficiencies and other ways to reduce the consumptive use of water through some form of conservation, through changing crop types. Uh, there's a lot of different ways. And I think uh, we're fortunate right now that the federal government has a lot of money to put towards these types of projects. But agriculture is certainly going to have to come to the table and play a role. And hopefully we'll continue to do that in voluntary way where they're telling us what the best things are for their individual communities to adapt. And even within the sector, it's, it's not all agriculture. A lot of it's grass. And, and the same is true of, of the cities, right? The number one consumptive use of Colorado River water in cities is turf. Number one consumptive use of water in the upper basin is pasture grass. And the number one consumptive use in the lower basin is alfalfa. 80% of the water goes to ag. 80% of that 80% is for forage crops like pasture grass, like alfalfa, like Sudan grass. One irrigation district in California used enough water to grow alfalfa last year that that alone lowered Lake Mead levels by about 20 feet. So again, as Colby said, you can't balance this on municipal users. The ag sector, one way or another, is going to have to reduce the amount of water they're using. The SNWA recently adopted a new conservation goal of 86 gallons per capita per day, which is a decrease from 110 GPCD. What are some of the restrictions and strategies being implemented to get us there? And when do we need to achieve this goal? Well, I'll, I'll start off. Uh, the, the goal is meant to be achieved by 2035. And we've talked about some of the stuff already, restricting uh, new turf, uh, in terms of only allowing it to go into uh, parks, schools, cemeteries, prohibiting 
new uh, pool sizes above 600 square feet. Uh, I'll let Dave talk about evaporative cooling and maybe Colby can talk a little bit about AB 356, but we actually have in our resource plan now a, a bar chart that shows you know, each category quantifies you know, how much we expect that to save in terms of gallons per capita per day and marches us down, not from the 112 number, but from 123, because we expect water usage in the valley to actually go up by about 11 gallons if we do nothing, simply because of warmer temperatures uh, locally and an aging system if we don't uh, continually take care of the stuff we already have. You know, our, our engineers and, you know, our, uh, some of our other folks may not think of pipe replacement as conservation, but if you allow your system to age and have leaky pipes, that's water we can't afford to lose either. So Dave, you want to start with evaporative cooling? Yeah. So what we've determined is, as John mentioned, our first uh, largest consumptive use of water is certainly associated with turf and grass. Um, and we've had programs in place for quite a while. The community's done a fantastic job in responding to our Water Smart Landscapes program. But the second we have found uh, largest consumptive use is in evaporative cooling. Evaporative cooling are cooling towers or swamp coolers that are used, and they use the evaporative effect from that, um, from that device to be able to cool buildings and casino properties, etc. That technology has been used pervasively since the valley was founded because water was cheap, energy was more expensive, and water was certainly more available than it is today. And so what we're doing is we're working with businesses and trying to partner to, first of all, educate, help them understand uh, what their evaporative footprint might look like, and then be able to also suggest ways that we can partner to be able to make their systems operate more efficiently. So really the approaches that we're looking at is we, we need to stop putting these technologies in for future development. And that's something that's been addressed by our board and that we're working on getting stakeholder input right now on that very topic. But there's a lot of things that can be done. Right now we have systems that are being drained to uh, the outfall as opposed to back into the sanitary sewer. There are ways that these systems are being operated to be able to minimize energy cost, but that uses more water. And we just need to be uh, partnering and working together as a community with business owners, property managers, to be able to understand what that impact is and minimize that impact. So our conservation approach is really no stone left unturned at this point. We're really looking to make sure that every use in the community that has room to conserve is playing a part in this next step of reaching our water conservation goal. One of the biggest steps we've taken thus far with the legislature was the adoption of AB 356, uh, which requires the removal of turf, non-functional turf, from everywhere except single-family homes. So non-functional turf is the things in medians or traffic circles or the tiny strips along the sidewalk where nobody's recreating on it. It's just really there for aesthetic purposes. But we also have golf course water budgets that we're advancing. John mentioned the pool size limitations. Uh, we're looking at how our parks use water and trying to come up with better ways for our parks to use water. And we also have things like rates that we're still going through and examining. We know that there are some equity issues in the way our rate structure is made that lead to people using more water or not valuing their water. So 
we are looking at every single aspect of our water use right down to the way that we manage our infrastructure to ensure that everywhere we can save water, we're working on it. And we're also looking at an excess use charge. The top 20% of our water users use an enormous disproportionate amount of water compared to the lower uh, 80% of users. Uh, and frankly, we think the time has come for them to pay for that. So we're planning on uh, taking something to our board. It'll be based seasonally. Everybody will get you know the same budget depending on what season of the year we're in. And then over that budget, uh, you're, you're going to pay more for the, the luxury of using that additional water. So the SNWA has taken a more aggressive approach to reach this new goal. What happens if we don't get to 86 GPCD? Well, I think that's why we do a resource plan every single year. Right? Every year we do a resource plan so that we always have a five-decade outlook of what that looks like. And if we fall behind in conservation, then it's going to be our job to, to tell not just the SNWA board, but all the member agencies that we're not going to be able to sustain the building that we talked about earlier for as, as long as we're projecting out. Right? right now we're saying if we can get to 86 gallons per capita per day by 2035, we think we have a stable water resource picture you know, through 2072. Right? If next year you know, we're, we're off track and we start dialing that number back and saying, okay, maybe we're only good to the 2060s, maybe we're only good to the 2050s, but we have to be, you know, sort of that canary in the coal mine of telling the community we're falling behind and now we have two decades of growth left instead of five. Well, that was a lot of great information. I I hope that everybody got something from that. I know even as an employee of the Water District and Water Authority, I learn something new every time I sit down and do these interviews or talk to the experts within our organization. So, you know, I just hope everybody has a little bit clearer understanding of how everything works, how we are tied to the river with the other states and why it's so important that we conserve. Yeah, I totally agree, Crystal. You know, you did a great job facilitating and moderating that conversation with that group. I think that uh, you asked some very pertinent questions, questions that certainly you and I will get when we're out there in the community and we're engaging with friends, family, and strangers who find out you work for the Water Authority. The questions start flying. That is one of the benefits of being able to do this roundtable. You have now heard it from the experts here at the Southern Nevada Water Authority. We hope that you feel a little bit more enlightened. And hey, take a look. This entire video is available on our YouTube page. Go to YouTube, just search SNWA or Southern Nevada Water Authority. It's right there at the top, roundtable discussion. You can find it. You can watch it. On top of that, we're also sharing this out on our social media networks, and we will continue to do that. Uh, A lot of good information here for everybody. Well, that's it for this episode here on the Water Smarts Podcast. We hope you subscribe, and don't forget to listen next time. If you have a question, send it to watersmarts at snwa.com or visit our website, snwa.com. Not only can you get a lot of good conservation information there, a lot of information about water resources, learn a little bit more about what you just heard with this roundtable discussion, but you can also reach us through our contact page. Any questions we receive, we'll make sure to get back with you. We might even ask them and answer them on the air. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next time here on Water Smarts.